sent an angel and shut the lion's mouth. Right on. My God sent an angel and he shut the lion's mouth. You hear that? Daniel said that, literally. My God sent an angel and shut the lion's mouth. I have no idea what that has to do with the message today, but that's an awesome verse. Um, I read that this morning, I'm like, yes! I don't know where that applies, but that's awesome. Alright, go to Luke chapter 22. So we are cruising at a speed of one miles an hour. One mile, I guess it would be one miles. One mile an hour. Through the book of Luke, we are charting, we are, we are arriving at the climax of the story, the climax of Jesus' life, the point of death, burial, resurrection. And there's a lot of things in this chapter, chapter 22, that are blatantly obvious, that are blatantly uh, the point. But I want to draw our attention this morning to something that is, is, and I don't know if you're like me, but uh, you miss the point <laughs> sometimes. There's this phrase in chapter 22 where I want to park that we're going to get to in just a moment. But first of all, I want to point out the fact that um, we are so disorganized at Conduit that sometimes it looks like we're organized. Um, <laughs> the strength, that's right. Even Quint's shirt it need, is like, never give up, right? Like, that's so where we're going this morning. I didn't tell him to wear that, nothing. Uh, the strength of the Lord this morning is here to strengthen you. He is here, He is near, and you don't want to miss it. Um, how many of you guys have been watching the Olympics? So fun, right? I've, uh, like, right, and I was, like, all in uh, days before, like, watching the preliminary, watching, like, women's soccer and all these other things that were happening before the opening ceremony. I downloaded, like, all the Olympics apps. You're, like, you're trying to clear your schedule, and you remember that, like, that's ridiculous to think that you can sit in front of a screen and watch a game of anything when we don't do that on a regular basis. And like there's all this excitement building up to this moment. And the funniest thing about all, all the Olympics aspects is that like, it's 2016 and we're so advanced in technology, but yet the average person can't watch the Olympics unless you have cable, right? Or unless you have a certain connection or unless you have really good bunny ears or a really good app or really good something but there's this like this feeling and I don't know if you have felt this way but you don't want to miss anything and how many of you stayed up late watching like way too late watching a sport that like you never would watch any other time like it's just you're like I'm watching gymnastics at 12:30 at night what am I doing how many, raise your hand again if that's you. That's me. I, I'm like all about it. I love it. Love it. It's been so exciting. It's been amazing. And, and just our, our country is just so proud of our country in this area. Like they just, they just knock it out of the park. But there's this feeling, and I felt this the other night. Uh, I stayed up really way too late. Uh, I think I actually fell asleep during 
portion of that and then woke up on the couch still watching it. And so the, the thing is, I think it was the, the gymnastics, uh, the, the girls' gymnastics night. And, and it all ends, and, like, they win, and they're, like, all on the camera, and they're, like, this is the final five. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, they're all excited. And then they, like, they break to Bob Costas. And the girls are sitting there fully clothed, like, in an air, like, this is not live. And I realized this, and I'm so angry. I'm like, are you kidding me? What's happening? They duped me. They, they made me feel like this was live. I, I could have I watched this in the morning. Like, in a, they could have crunched it in a 30-second clip. This could have been amazing. And I just felt so duped. And I, the, I guess the point is, is that I didn't want to miss out on anything. Um, you've heard of this, uh, this disease uh, or dysfunction of the brain called FOMO. Have you ever heard of FOMO? I have a, a severe case of FOMO. Um, it's fear of missing out. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's legit, but it's legit to me. I never want to miss anything. And I don't know if you're this way. And like, I got to be really sensitive because my, my parents are in the room. Um, growing up, my greatest punishment was not spankings, although they were not too brutal. They weren't like call CPS worthy, but they were, they were way, they, like I deserved, every, I deserved more than what I actually got. But for me, for me, the punishment that got me, do not, do not send me to my room. Because in my room is great, but I might miss something. Like there's this feeling like I might miss something fun or if I was grounded, are you kidding me? Like I might miss, like my friends, like there was this feeling like I might miss out on something. Do you know that feeling? But then there's this collective feeling that I think ultimately what the disciples uh, missed on, what Jesus was upset that they missed on, was that they missed something together. They didn't experience something together that they should have. That, that Jesus wanted them to experience together. They missed out. Let me illustrate. Take a look at this video. So some of you in the room are like, really? Are you guys awake back there? Some of you in the room are like, does he really have a video? Some of you in the room are like, man, we need to get conduit a new projector or new pay, pay them better back there or something. There's this like awkwardness in the room and you feel it, right? Um, because something was supposed to be up there and it, and it didn't play. We were supposed to experience it together and it didn't happen and heads must roll because of this, right? Like maybe this is just a pressure that I feel because I've actually been in that spot many times, never here of course, um, where that technical difficulty didn't work out. But there, there's this feeling, or if you've ever been to a movie theater where all of a sudden, um, even this happened to us recently, where like something was going on with the movie and it like just turned yellow and went crazy and then like it just didn't work. There's this feeling of, like, collectively, as a group, we're like, we missed out. Jesus 
is pointing out clearly in the midst of the most intense moment of not just his life, not just the most intense moment of the disciples' life, not just the most intense moment in the church's life, but the most intense moment of the entire history of humanity. And these disciples missed out on something. Now if you look at chapter 22 of Luke, you're going to see several things. That honestly, I mean, even though we're going through Luke, I mean, we've been in here since the 70s, but um, we still have to buzz through and buzz over some really amazing things. But we hit last week in the focal point of the widow's two coins that she gave was Jesus pointing out to his disciples that that is what it looks like to give of yourself everything to God. You're not, just your, not just your two coins, but your entire life. And you know, past even just your own life, but the faith that's in the system that God had set up. Ultimately, secondarily pointing out that these religious leaders are so corrupt and Jesus is about to level the ground. Jesus is about to destroy the temple, tear the curtain, and make us have the presence of God. This temple, gone, but our bodies will become the temple of the Holy Spirit through what's about to happen with Jesus. But Jesus was calling out something even greater in that moment in chapter 21. He was saying in chapter 21, he was saying that, that like the widow's sacrifice was going towards the temple Jesus was saying that he is the widow's two coins. He is the sacrifice going into the temple. Who is the temple? You. He is the sacrifice that is taking place, that pours into, that ultimately has been given and poured out for you and me, the new temple. So as we move to chapter 22, Jesus is pointing out lots of other things. And unfortunately, he's pointing them out with not just teaching them about some lady and her offering in the temple. He's teaching them through the end of his life. He's teaching them through experience. He's bringing them to a point where not only will Jesus suffer and die, but he's making it very clearly that all of you guys that sit before me now at the Last Supper, you're going to be murdered you're going to be crucified. You're going to be boiled. You're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. You're going to completely mess up. Because you're a mess. But tonight, I'm going to be arrested. Tonight, we'll begin my crucifixion. And on the, on the morrow, my life will be given my life will be broken. My life will be poured out for you. Take, eat this bread, drink this cup as a sign of what's about to happen. So as he brings his, his disciples to this, they were celebrating in chapter 22, not just the first few verses of the plot kill Jesus, not just the idea of Judas, who was one of the disciples, and I know Judas gets a very bad rap on how it ended, but at this point, Judas wasn't a glaring black sheep, so to speak. 
He wasn't the one of the disciples that's always skeptical, that's always like, I don't know, guys, let's not tell people about God. Like, he wasn't that guy. He wasn't the guy pocketing money the whole time. At this point, Jesus brings up the idea that one of you guys are going to betray me. One of you guys are going to sell me out. They literally, their response in this chapter was that they were looking at each other like, it's not me, it's not me. No, no way, are you kidding me? This is crazy, not me. And they all were communicating that. Something happened with Judas. It says that the, the devil entered him. And in that moment, he plotted to betray Jesus. What had already been plotted by these religious leaders that he had been calling out and pointing out. to back up 20 minutes or is that good? Can you hear me? Alright. So the religious leaders had plotted to kill Jesus. This, was, this had been planned for a long time, specifically intensifying the week of the last week of Jesus' life. And here, again, they gather in to celebrate the Passover, which was significant. No wonder they don't work. I'm picking them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll pay for that, I guess. Um, <laughs> the Passover was significant for them. This was not Old Testament for them. This was present tense. This was a celebration of how way back in their history that in order to for their, for their life and their kids, their little boys' lives to be spared, they had to spread blood over the door, and I won't get too much into this, but when they put blood over the door, the Spirit passed over that and spared them and gave them life while bringing death to everyone else. This was horrific for many, but this was celebratory on the point of blood being displayed, saved life. This was celebratory, and still is, for the Jews. And so when they gathered for this meal to celebrate what God had spared them from, because we can't for a moment be entitled to what God thinks or we think God owes us. Life, eternal life, God is God. He has created a way for us to be spared. And for them, in that day, it was blood over the door. So here they were as disciples, and Jesus as well, celebrating the Passover, celebrating what was about to happen. So Jesus pointed out that you need to look for the guy holding the water jug, and he will, he will show you. He will actually take you to the place, the upper room, the Cataluma, if you remember. The place where you will gather for your final time, our final time together. For them, they may even, may, may even not... Maybe he didn't see the significance, but Jesus felt the significance. 
Jesus knew the significance. So they ate the bread. They drank the cup. They understood that in verse 20, the cup is poured out for you a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which one of them it could be because he was going, who was going to do this. So as they were pointing out between each other, who's going to betray him? They got a little insecure. And this next few verses begins this conversation between the disciples of <laughs> who's the greatest? They got their mind off of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and what is about to take place, and they missed it. They begin to start seeing themselves. They begin to start seeing their own insecurities. They begin to start seeing compensation for their insecurities while calling out rank and order and importance. They missed it. Like, literally. He is near. He is here. And they've missed it. So then Jesus brings it back. And rather than correcting all of their... uh, insecurities, rather than giving a sermon, rather than giving them a pep talk collectively, he called out one of them, who, by which God was going to use to build, um, that he was going to flip the whole world upside down through this person, Peter. He calls him out. He doesn't call him out and encourage him. He calls him out and he foretells him denying Jesus. This is before Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's confused. Peter denies the denial foretelling. (laughs) Peter denies this because he feels in the moment that he is so loyal. The scripture must be fulfilled. So that night, it's late. And they go, he invites them, and, and as a custom was his part of his practice, he went to the place that he went usually. He went to the Mount of Olives. Now, I've not been to Israel, but again, the significance of the geography, just like last week, fascinates me. Because, again, we're not talking metaphor, we're not talking Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, we're not talking about any of that, we're talking about a literal group of men. We're talking about a man that was God with skin, 100% man, 100% God, and in this moment, like, he's about to give his life. The next part is where I want to park, and it shows the true humanity of Jesus, and it shows the true deity of Jesus, and it's beautifully tragic as we feel, like, skin on skin, feel the agony of what Jesus is about to go through. The Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, that same place. It's not a big place. 
That region that they were in, in that garden, was like several hundred yards long and wide. We're not talking a mountain region. We're talking about a specific area. And there's these olive trees that obviously produce olives. And for them, and it still is significant for their culture. And they understood, just like you and I may understand, uh, specifically like, uh, like an apple tree, um, or like you have the, the Busta Apple Fest, where you go and you don't just get apples, but you get apple tasting things, and you hurt it, hurt it, hurt you like you like it's part time, it's fall. I got Han Solo boots and vest on. Like you're, it's like a cultural thing. You understand the significance of all of that based on an apple. For them, it's a little bit different, minus the Han Solo boots and this vest. But they understood that the Mount of Olives producing these olives that in that place was where there was olive presses. The olives would be dumped into an area and they would literally, just like you've seen people do with grapes, they do that with olives, they do that with machines or stones that grind them down. And the olive oil comes out of the olive and it drains collectively down in order to give them something to sell, something to use, something to sustain their bodies. Ultimately, from that olive, and that olive oil giving life. So the fact that Jesus was gathering with his disciples the night before he's crucified, in that moment, in that place, was absolutely significant. He's pointing out in metaphor, as he's done all throughout Luke, that here he is, he is the olive. He is the one that's about to be crushed. He is the one that's about to be bruised. He is the one that is about to have his life given collectively for us. But it's not done yet. Jesus gathers at the Mount of Olives, verse 39. Would you read with me? <clears throat> or follow along with me? Verse 39. And he came out... And he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being found in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, <laughs> he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. I read that slow so that you understand that each part
part of that is absolutely significant. But the dripping, obvious thing that I think that we miss in this passage, all, all these passages, but specifically in chapter 22, that it wasn't so much about what was happening, but who it was happening to, and who it was happening with. Who it was happening with. Have you ever been through something hard and there was a lot of people around that cared, that loved, talked you through it, that were present with you, that were willing to do anything? Can you think of a time? Maybe you're in that time right now. You know, Think of a time where you went some, through something really hard, extremely difficult, and no one was around. No one cared. You felt alone. Maybe you're there. Loneliness can be true. Or loneliness can be an illusion. What I seek to do this morning is to point out the obvious fact that you're not alone. You're not alone because of God. You're not alone because of us. There's an absolute action step, an absolute action step to take today to not feel alone. And you can feel lonely with tons of people around, and you can feel lonely with nobody around. Um, Robin Williams ironically said, um, he once thought that the worst thing in the world was to be, end up being alone. But he said he found out that actually the worst thing in the world is being around a lot of other people and making and them making you feel alone. He thought the worst thing in the world was to end up being alone, but he ended up finding out it's even worse to be around all kinds of people that make you feel alone. When we get in these relationships, when we get in these churches, and we get in these workplaces, and we get in these marriages, and we get in these situations where you just feel alone. You're not alone. And if you feel alone, welcome to church. The point of the reason we gather collectively is that we don't miss out on each other. That we don't miss out, yes, of course, on experiencing God and reading His perfect Word and feeling the Holy Spirit thick every day of our lives. But the point of this is to feel each other and to feel that we're not alone in our lives, in relationships, different backgrounds, different perspectives, different like political, social understandings and beliefs, diversity across the board. That's what it should be, right? That's the beautiful picture of the gospel. And I know this, I'm making it sound really easy. 
but we don't want to miss out because he is here. He is near. We don't want to miss this. We don't preach like guilt to you like every week, like you need to be here at church. If you love God, you're going to be here every week. You're never going to hear that unless you just heard me say it sarcastically. Um, But we want you here. We want you to be a part of what's happening this week, not because we need your help, not because of conduit's mission, like needs you as a pawn in order to fulfill this, but you know and I know that there's something inside that releases, that is freed when you serve another person. There's something that is released, and when you feel together, like sweating your face off in this dumb truck, giving, like, irony of you sweating so hot, but yet giving snow cones to kid after kid, even though it's his 14th one. Like, there's something about that. There's something about that is so freeing. Like, we're together. I'm not alone. I may be the only one in the truck, but I'm not alone. There's all these people that want snow cones. There's all these instances where you're going to show up, and you're going to help somebody with their laundry. You're going to help a foster parent understand what it's like to love a child that they don't they didn't know a month ago but now they fully can't imagine life without knowing this child their child we're going to help these women for a moment feel loved and valued and that the sacrifice that Jesus gave his life for is for them as well and that they're just as loved as we are and they may not feel that yet But man, we're going to lay it on the line so that they feel it. When we bond together, and this is not just some, like, soapbox so that you sign up more for I Love. You heard Katie. We don't need any more sign-ups, but we want more sign-ups. There's more people to be reached. But, like, literally, you guys are ready. Everything is prepared. We just don't want you to miss We don't want you to miss out on God being here and God being near. Because that's where he is. He's in his people. He's dwelling among them. He's on the ground serving. That's where he shows up. And it's this beautiful picture, this beautiful reminder of the gospel, us collectively together, that we're not alone. Not only is he here, not only did we learn last week that we are the temple and, and by belief and trust, And the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Spirit of Christ, comes and resides in us, in our temple. We're not alone. And I'm not saying that, like, trite. I'm saying that with a lovingly, a loving heart and encouragement to you, that you literally are not alone. And if you feel alone, speak it. Reach. Show up. Roll your sleeves up. Serve. Hug somebody, for goodness sakes. Because it's not about receiving. It's about giving. When you give and you're poured out, just like Jesus, all of a sudden you just feel like you've received it all. This is what it's all about, and I don't want to miss it. So for Jesus and his disciples, as Jesus encouraged them, Stay right here by the tree. I know you guys are tired. I know it's one in the morning. There's a lot happening. Your bellies are full. 
Because let's face it, I bet you at that night they did not just eat a little cracker dipped in grape juice. Their bellies were full. Their hearts were full. Because they're like, dude, Jesus, man, he's intense. Like, he keeps talking about dying. It's crazy. Like, they missed the point of this is really happening. And so that the way that they dealt with the intensity, the way that they dealt with, like, charting forward was what a lot of us do. We just go to sleep. We just distract ourselves. We just get busy doing stuff. What did Jesus ask them to do? This is such a Sunday school answer. Like, I'm throwing you a lob. What did Jesus pray? Sounds easy, right? But when you're in that intense agony as well, and you've been through all you've been through, and you feel fear, and you feel like this anxiety and this, this stress for, for what's about to happen for Jesus, or, or more practically for us, you feel this like heaviness for what's about to happen to somebody you know and love, and you feel it so heavily, it's so easy to just move on or just check out or just disengage or go golf or go eat or go sleep or go do whatever we do. It's natural. You do it and you better believe I do it. When God's asking us, he's wooing us to this moment, pray, pray. Talk to God about this. Don't just start praying and then just like, so, all right, God, I need you to fix this. I need you to fix this person. Just stop. Why did Jesus ask them to pray? What, did, what, did, what was essentially he asking them to pray about? Pray so that they don't enter into temptation. Jesus didn't want them to pray so they didn't enter into temptation of like, like there wasn't women walking around in the, in the garden. It wasn't like this temptation to, to go steal or go cheat somebody out of something. He wasn't talking about that temptation. The temptation that he is begging in his agony for these disciples to like pray themselves out of. The temptation to fear. The temptation to be discouraged. The temptation that they're alone. The temptation that what is about to happen, the Savior that they follow, the Savior that they love, that the Savior that like, every day was going to be okay. Like they didn't read Luke. They don't know the end of the story. And everything was about to like hit the fan. Everything was about to fall over the cliff. And they don't even, they don't even know what's coming. But God wanted them prepared so that when this happened, when Jesus was literally on the cross, dying, bleeding out, for the sins of the world that they wouldn't scatter, but they did scatter. They were nowhere to be found. The next time they show up is when Jesus rose. And even then, they were kind of like still spinning. They had no idea what's coming or what's going on. They're so confused. They're so sad. They're so lost. If they would have went in that moment, leaning against that tree, and sought the face of God, and asked, God, fill me. Strengthen me. Help me to not fear. Help me to trust in you. 
Help me to believe your word. Help me to believe what you sent, God the Father, and your Son, and the words that he says. Help me to believe what I already know. How many times do we get in this spot? We come into a, like a problem or a tragedy or a calamity, and it's all of a sudden, it's like, like, it's like we try to figure out, like reinvent the wheel. Or we act like we just so skittish and like it's all lost. I might as well give up. When truthfully, we're called to stand firm. We're called to believe. We're called to get down. We're called to surrender. We're called to trust. We're called to drop everything we have in our hands, everything that's going to get us out of this mess, hard work, the right words, charm, time. We're called to drop that and to come completely naked before our Heavenly Father, totally exposed, totally vulnerable, totally trusting Him because we've got nothing else but you, God. And yes, he arms us. Yes, he gives us tools. Yes, he helps us get up. But in that moment, he's calling us to surrender before the face of God. God, I don't want to fear. Help me to trust you. God, I need your peace because of the war that's raging inside of me. here, he's near, and they missed out. They went to sleep. So with 13 minutes left, let me get to the point of, I guess I should have got to 20 minutes ago. When Jesus was off praying, a stone's throw away. You know the story. He, he was down himself on his knees as a sign of reverence. He was appearing before his Heavenly Father and he's walking through his own humanity of what's about to take place. The agony of what he's about to go through. Not because of some nails. Not because of the crown of thorns. Not because of embarrassment of these people that just seven days ago, six days ago at that point had just, no, not even that, a few days earlier, had just cried out as he passed through the city and they're parading around saying, finally, our Messiah is here. Those same people are about to spit on his face and yell, crucify him. Not, he's not weeping. He's not in agony. He's not sweating drops of blood because of that. He's carrying an unbearable pressure of the weight of our sin and the wrath of God. The cup, let this cup pass from me. The cup, literally, and all throughout the Bible, the cup is representation every time to the wrath of God. He's saying to his father, let this wrath, this cup, pass from me. And not even in the same breath saying, or excuse me, and in essentially in the same breath saying, not my will, but your will. 
It's in the midst of our agony, in the midst of our feeling alone, in the midst of us wanting and, and knowing we need to trust. Man, the basics, the fundamentals of saying, God, it's not about me. It's not about my legacy. It's not about my house. It's not even about my wife or kids. It's not even about my job. It's about you. It's about your will. It's your will for my life. It's your will for this city. It's your will for this church. It's not about me. Jesus did that. Well, let's be real. Jesus felt alone. Jesus was alone. Literally, metaphorically, looking over a stone's throw, his disciples are sleeping. He's got nobody. He knows Judas is on the way to betray him. He knows what's about to happen. He knows what's going to happen with Peter today, months from now, years from now. He knows the agony that's about to take place for many suffering under the name of Jesus. And that agony is overcoming him. He just wants to be with his people. He just doesn't want to be alone. He's invested all of this into these guys and they've messed it up. He doesn't want to be alone. I uh, had a, uh, this couple, a boy and a girl that was, um, that was in my youth group when I, about 11 or so years ago, in my youth group in Memphis, Tennessee. And um, their names was Amanda and Tony. And uh, I didn't see this coming, but they, they actually, years later, after we were gone, uh, started dating and, and had been together this whole, for several years, and they, they were planning to get married um, uh, in two months. They had a two-year-old child together, just an amazing people. They were in a car accident, a car swerved into their lane um, and hit them head-on, and she died. And um, I, t I spoke with her fiancé, Tony, who I, I very clearly remember sitting in my classroom office in Memphis, Tennessee, and leading Tony uh, in a prayer to receive Jesus as his Savior. And it's so clear to me, and I remember I was talking with him last night over Messenger and just asking how he's doing, because he, he was pretty messed up. He's been, uh, he survived, he's, he's been in and out of surgeries almost daily um, with his son as well, who was uh, critically injured, um, and another passenger that was in the car. Um, so the driver, Amanda, um, had, had died, um, as well as the driver of the other car that swerved into the to the lane and, and just asking Tony, like, you know, how could I pray for you? How are you? How are you doing physically? Like, what's going on? And he responded back. We went back and forth probably eight, nine times, and and the thing collectively was seeing about 12:45 this morning, um, and each one of his messages was as obvious as the tragedy is. All he wants 
is her with him right now. He just wants her there so that he can, it can help him experience her life. It's such a confusing thing, but he just kept saying that over and over and not sure how to share this news with their, their, their three-year-old and, and not sure how to process the fact that in two months they were getting married and, 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 and he know, he's, a, he's a Memphis police officer, so like he knows like how to process this stuff. He's been trained how to process these kind of traumatic things until it happens to him and he's experienced. All he wants is to be, have her, and he's saying how like there's all these people that actually happened in Alabama and all these cops and all these friends and loved ones have, have come down to the hospital where he's at in Alabama. He's like, I've not been alone to be able to process this. But yet in that not being alone, completely lost and completely lonely. We need our people. We need each other. We need that presence of one another in our lives. We don't need just the, the literal presence of them sitting or them laying in, in our spouse next to us in our bed or, or us driving a car with our friend or with our co-workers in the same factory. We need their life. We need their, their friendship. We need their love, their grace, and their peace that they offer. We need each other. Think about heaven. When we think about heaven, it's not necessarily like the, 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 um, the streets of gold. Of course, we think of Jesus and seeing Jesus and be with Jesus forever, the one who died for our sins. And we think about eternity. We think about all that. But a lot of times, what's the first thing we think about? We think about those people that have gone before, that we get to un- reunite with. Mom, Dad. My roommate, Kevin. My best friend growing up, Jared, who died of an overdose at 23. Two of my children, unborn children, that are in heaven. You think of the same people. Your friend. That person that just went home too soon. Or even that person that lived an amazing life but has breathed their last and because of their faith in Jesus, they or in eternity, you think about seeing them. You think about reuniting with them. You think about embracing them and them, like, you're just being together again. That's what you think about, is because we need that. It's so significant to us. So in Jesus' moment of loneliness, in Jesus' moment of showing that he is weak, questioning, yet fully sovereign, yet fully sinless, yet fully God, King of kings, Lord of lords, but on His face, weak before His Father. This phrase that I'd never seen before or noticed before. Verse 42. Verse 43, excuse me. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven, Strengthening him. And there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening Jesus. What? What? An angel strengthening God? Wow. 
angels. They don't, they don't get enough credit. They do a lot. Aren't angels the ministering spirits? Aren't angels the ones that minister to us in our need through the power of God and in His presence of the Holy Spirit through these literal... Like, isn't this the moment that we're talking about? Isn't this where... Or, okay, I guess it does apply. Where the angel shut the mouth of the lion. How is that lion? And that lion and that one. How are they not eating? It doesn't even seem like they can open their mouth. Because the angel of God is holding their mouth shut. And in this moment, an angel sent from God which is absolutely significant to the life of Jesus, appearing a couple other times. The angel shows up when it's about to get crazy, when it's about to get intense, when it's about to get hard. The angel shows up to minister. The angel shows up to remind. The angel shows up to strengthen. Why did the angel come to Mary? Yes, to deliver some news. But it was more than information. That angel came to Mary and said, Look, you're about to be pregnant. From God. No pressure. People aren't going to like that. And by the way, he's God with skin in your belly. Good luck. Like, he'll be a good kid, but there's going to be a lot of pressure. Like, the angel showed up to strengthen her. Isn't that what he said? It was his very presence. And Jesus, in this moment, of weakness, this moment of questioning, this moment of affirmation, the angels coming to strengthen him. What does that look like? I can't stop thinking about like what it literally looked like. What did the angel do? Did the angel pick him up? Like I pick up my little three-year-old girl and hold her like defiant chunkiness, like in my arms. Like, is it was it like there he's picking up Jesus like and hovering her? Was he speaking in the, in the ear of Jesus? Like, what, was, it, was it more of like Jesus bowing and, and the angel above Jesus' hands on the shoulders? Was it him breathing life into Jesus? Was it, I, like, I think of this, like, like literally, like, this, the red and black air pump that we have at home. And that like, would pump up everything. I imagine, like, the angels over here, like, pumping, trying to, like, like, get Jesus, like, to know, like, to not give up and to, like, do it, like, this is it, man. But this is what I actually think happened. I think Jesus, in his moment of humanity, in his moment of deity, I think the angels strengthened him by raising him up. Making his head look up. If he's in the Mount of Olives, he is a few hundred yards away from the temple. The place where God resides. Where God is stuck, essentially behind the curtain. Only to be accessed by a priest once a year, and through the sacrifice of bulls and goats and etc. We talked about this last week. I believe in that moment, the angel of God lifted Jesus' chest. And he saw the temple, but he didn't see the temple. He saw the people in the temple. He saw people, and it's almost as if 
the, 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 the angel said to him, I'm totally speculating. It's almost as if the angel said to him, your people, they need you. Your people need your forgiveness that you can offer. Your people need reconciliation. Your people need a Savior. Your people need a rescue. Your people need eternal life. Look at him, Jesus. Jesus, I was turns to Jesus, like, look at you guys. They're a mess. Look at Peter. He needs you. He needs redeemed from his mess. He needs redeemed from his denial. He needs redeemed from all of his sins. Judas, here he comes. Look at Judas. Judas needs an opportunity to receive forgiveness. These disciples, these people, they need you, Jesus. They need what you have to offer, and you're the only one to offer. And it's as if the angel is just strengthening Jesus. He's reminding him of what he already knows because he's God. He's reminding him of what's about to happen. And he's speaking this, and he's strengthening. And if you notice what's about to happen through the rest of this, through the rest of this, this culmination as these guys come up, as we land this plane. The culmination of what is about to happen is that Jesus got up different than when he went down. He went down in agony. He went down sweating drops of blood, but he rose and he went and he never stopped. Ever. He's never stopped. Ever. To this day, he's never stopped. Yes, he died, but when he died, he didn't stop. He came and he brought the keys to rescue all of us. And in his death, life we have. And in his, in his resurrection, life we get through faith in Jesus. In that moment was completely significant for the angel to speak to him. Look at the people. They need what you got. We have Jesus because of the temple that God has given us. He resides in our temple. And in this moment, why doesn't God want you to feel lonely? Why, doesn't, why does God want you to, to feel discouraged? Why does he want you to pray? So that he can strengthen you. Don't go to sleep. Yeah, I know you need it. I could sleep for two weeks. But what he needs you to do is strengthen up in the power of God. Strengthen up in the power of his word. And then he's drawing us to look at the people. He's drawing us to look at Jamestown. He's, he's raising you up to look at the workplace. He's lifting you up to point out all the people around you. They your Jesus. They need your Jesus, the sacrifice you've been made. They need love, grace. They need your peace. They need your Jesus. He's here. 
Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it this week. Would you stand? God,